Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. doing a series on the Bible, and um, I get to speak to you tonight on the biblical meta-narrative, which you're all going, woo, woo. Um, This is just lots of big words for the big story of the Bible. Um, This is going to be a little bit whistle-stop. I gave this this morning, and um, if I speak too fast, which I'm inclined to do, just somebody wave a hand or say, slow down a bit, or something like that, okay? Because we're going to go through the whole Bible in about 20 minutes, 25 minutes. I know. I saw the eyebrows go up over there. Um, So this is going to be good stuff, but I would brace yourselves. Um, we're going to look at this big story, whether we could say that the Bible has one cohesive story, um, this sort of an overarching narrative, and um, what that might mean for us. I'm just going to move away from that light bulb a little bit. I quite like it. I don't want to turn it off. I just don't want it in my peripheral vision. We do love stories, don't we? I think if you think about anything like Star Wars or Disney or the Avengers, who likes the Avengers? I watched what I think was the latest, stop it, SP's laughing already. I watched the latest Avengers recently. Oh my gosh, it's the most confusing movie I've ever seen. Um, But this is not a a, um, reflection on my maturity. This was because I'd forgotten to watch the one before. So it literally made no sense. But most of these stories that we watch, we can see a familiar sort of um, theme in them. Often our stories are about somebody who has a sense of something missing in their life, something that they're restless about, or they have this sense of destiny or an inner call to something outside their small world. And obviously in the Avengers, I mean, that's the, like, the entire galaxy, right? So these people, they they set off uh, to find it, and in the process, of course, they come across all sorts of challenges and difficulties which they have to overcome. Um, Sometimes someone they trust has betrayed them, and uh, sometimes someone unlikely becomes their greatest source of strength. They normally face disaster at some point in the journey, but ultimately they reach the goal. They save the girl, they save the village, or sometimes they even save the planet. And in the process of doing that, they often find out that the thing that they were looking for was really inside them all along. Does that sound familiar? Um, The Bible doesn't tell that story. So um, when we open it up, it can be a little bit confusing. Um, I was thinking about it because this is my Bible, this hefty thing. And I was thinking it's a bit like the box set that you are always going to watch. You could start that box set at the beginning, series one, like the Bible. But then there's no mention of this guy, Jesus, who seems to be a fairly crucial character. But if you start towards the end, maybe series five or six, then something's definitely missing. You really feel like you don't get the plot line, you don't understand the jokes, and there's just something significant that's going right over your head. Some of us may have even been brought up to believe that this is some sort of instruction manual. I think if only. Instead, it can be confusing, it can be complicated, and sometimes it's even contradictory. It's not always even in chronological order. 
It might start with Genesis and end with Revelation, but it covers more than 1,500 years, numerous countries, and a range of authors and styles. Uh, Phil spoke a lot on the makeup of the Bible during uh, the first uh, podcast, the first sermon in this series, so it's worth listening to him. But we should remind ourselves that this book that I've got in my hand is actually a library. It is full of poetry, history, uh, eyewitness accounts, letters, the whole shebang. And it's not an easy read. So you can breathe a sigh of relief. This is not an easy read. If you're struggling with this, join the club. It should, in fact, come with an instruction manual all of its own, and I can recommend a very good one. So uh, you'll see on the first slide, there's a book I recommend called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. That one is the latest edition. Mine is slightly prehistoric. There's also an excellent animated series, website, YouTube, podcast, the works, called The Bible Project. I don't know if any of you have checked that out, but it's really, really worth it. You can look at key themes in the Bible that and uh, books of the Bible, characters, everything. It's really, really helpful. Um, and for the sake of clarity, we need to acknowledge that one of the reasons why this is so difficult to understand is that it's an ancient Jewish story, and not many of us are Jewish, and not many of us are minorities who've experienced misrepresentation, persecution, and even state-sponsored murder. I am neither Jew Jewish nor a minority. But at some point in the first century, this very ancient Jewish story becomes a story about Christ, a story about Christianity. And 2,000 years later, then it becomes part of my story. I have spent hours reading it. I have wrestled with it and been formed by it over more than 30 years. And so I'm going to tell this story in this way this evening because I think it matters. And if I can share a small part of why I think it matters, then I think it might become part of your story too. I'm going to tell this story by focusing on six words, all beginning with the letter E, just like an episode of Sesame Street. Um, there are other themes in the Bible that I won't cover this evening, some that are quite significant, but I think they deserve a sermon all of their own. I hope this gives you a sort of framework, a sort of map, if perhaps you don't have one, so that next time you open the Bible, you've got a sense of where what you're reading fits into the bigger story. So the first E is Eden. Are you sitting comfortably? Then I shall begin. Once upon a time, there was a garden. Eden was a place of abundance and peace that God had provided where man and woman, Adam and Eve, could thrive and where God was pleased to dwell with them. The early chapters of Genesis describe humanity made in the image of God to take care of one another, to rule responsibly over the natural world on his behalf and to live peaceful and purposeful lives. But they immediately face a choice, whether they're going to trust God or whether they're going to do things on their own terms. As this early part of the story unfolds, we quickly see the outcome of that choice. It leads to fractured relationships, violence and aggression, and a lust for power. And this becomes obvious really quickly in the first few chapters of Genesis. Instead of Eden, a place of life and peace and abundant love, humanity experiences scarcity, struggle, and shame. But of course, God doesn't abandon his creation. He has a plan to restore his relationship with humanity and to restore it to its original place and purpose. And his solution starts with a family. He calls a new man and woman, Abraham and Sarah, to become the parents of this new family. And in Genesis 12, it says, 
Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. From their descendants, a people group will be formed who God will have a very unique relationship with, and they will represent him to the rest of the world. But this family will also continue to wrestle with God. And in fact, that is what they come to be called, Israel, which means to struggle or to contend with. They do become great in number, but many generations later, they find themselves in slavery. They cry out to God, and he sends someone to lead them out of captivity into freedom. This is our next E, the Exodus. In chapter 2, it says, During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So who does God send in answer to their prayers? God sends Moses, a murderer, a runaway, and a reluctant prophet. He becomes the leader of these slaves, liberating them from an oppressive way of life and leading them through water to a new land. Now they have to learn how to live in freedom, once more choosing whether or not to trust God with his provision and his purpose for their lives, or whether they'll choose to live life their own way. God makes many promises to them during this part of their story. Where they go, he will be with them. He will be their light. He will be their guide, their provider. And they will be a light for him. They will be a signpost towards him and a source of his abundant love to the rest of the world. They were to trust him and they were to obey him. And because of this, they would become the people of his presence. But once again, it does not go well. These people are unable to live the life that they've been called to in the place that they've been given. They spend most of their time wandering in the wilderness. This family that started with Abraham and Sarah, which is now made up of tribes of families, is now fractured and frustrated. They're given all kinds of rules and regulations for surviving a nomadic life in the desert. But it really comes down to this. The Shema, the most ancient Jewish prayer found in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. But again, it's a familiar story. We can read of moral failure, leadership failure, and failure to live up to expectations. And many of the Old Testament writers just call this unfaithfulness. So hundreds of years pass, and these people are first governed by judges and then by kings. A godly leader will arise. The people renew their promise and commitment to God's purpose for their lives. And then for one reason or another, they forget God's promises and they go their own way, which leads to destruction and disaster. There is a time under David when God seems to have his man on the throne. David is described as a man after God's own heart, and he gives us a glimpse at what a true king might look like until he blows it. And then his son Solomon, he finally builds a temple worthy of the presence of God. He gives people a taste of what is in Hebrew called shalom, 
this sense of peace and plenty, of wholeness, of rightness and rest all around until he blows it. And then his sons, each one worse than the one before. Soon the people of God are divided geographically and in families, and then they're conquered by foreign kings. The temple is destroyed, the city walls are destroyed, and they're carried off into exile. That's our next E. And like them, we're left wondering, where is God now? And if they couldn't do it, how exactly is it possible for anyone else? But when all hope is gone, the people are reminded by their prophets over and over again, who call them back to faithfulness to God, that God does not break his promises. He has said that he will send a helper, a rescuer, a redeemer, a servant king, a leader like Moses or David, who will do what they couldn't do, who will live a holy life, who will be a light to the world. And in turn, they will be transformed from the inside out to become the people that they were made to be. Now, we're going to pause at this point. I think if this was a movie, this would be the moment of uh, some rousing music before the final scene. Enter the hero who saves the people, and they all live happily ever after. But it's with a real sense of disappointment that the Old Testament ends. There's a buildup of expectation. The prophets, many of them, have come and spoken to the people in different ways, some many dramatic ways. And there are promises made and expectation mounting, but there's only silence from God. So please hear me when I say this is not your average fairy tale. There are no heroes in this story. It's so full of failure, it's embarrassing. And if you're a follower of Christ, this is your family history. It's a bit like one of those programs where a celebrity tries to find out what their genealogy is, and I can't remember who presents it, but, you know, they go on there, and they're hoping that they're related to somebody like Winston Churchill or Joan of Arc, and uh, instead they find out that they, are at, they were related to thieves and murderers and uh, people they'd really rather not be associated with. This story is full of lying and cheating and sex with all the wrong people. But for many of us, that's our story too. And when we take a look, we see that actually God seems to like hanging out with those kind of people. And that's a bit of a relief for most of us. So it's really vital that we all see ourselves in this story. For that moment, I have an aside. Uh, you could be forgiven for imagining that this is a story only about men. But just because women are often hidden from our sermons, they are not hidden in the pages of Scripture. Just because you've heard more sermons about David than Deborah and Moses than Miriam, that does not reflect the presence of God and the power of God in the lives of the women in these pages. This brings us, of course, to Mary, a young woman, and Elizabeth, an old, childless woman and to a new chapter in this story where God comes to fulfill his promises. What's happening in this period between the Old and the New Testament may be full of silence from God, but it's not a peaceful period. The Jewish people experience more violence and persecution under Alexander the Great and under Julius Caesar. And they're only allowed to return to their land sort of sponsored by the Persians and then again under Roman rule. 
Many of them are still scattered throughout the empire, which is vast at this stage. Others have returned from a life lived in exile in a foreign land to one lived under empire in their promised land. The Roman Empire now stretches across the Mediterranean and into the Middle East from North Africa to northern Britain. These Jews are uniquely monotheistic, stubbornly worshipping one God, so much so that they are suspected of being atheists for the lack of idols in their temple in a culture that believes that even the emperors are gods. At the time of Jesus' birth, the Gospel of Luke tells us that Caesar Augustus is emperor, and he's the son of Julius Caesar. Emperor worship is well established, and so Augustus is known as a son of God. At the same time, ruling over Judea is Herod the Great, named by the Romans as the king of the Jews. Both of them, of course, are dead by the time that Jesus begins his ministry, but the oppression of the Romans has endured over the Jewish people. And here comes Jesus into this scenario, not to overthrow the Romans, not to liberate them from an earthly government, but to confront the unseen darkness, to liberate humanity from its slavery, and to lead them into a new land, a new heavenly country, transforming them in identity and purpose. Jesus comes to fulfill the call of God on his people, and to be the faithful one, and to show the world the abundance of God's love. Jesus announced that the kingdom of God is here, that it is on earth, and then he demonstrates what that looks like with signs and wonders. When John the Baptist is calling people, he's talking about the kingdom of God as though it's pulling up in the driveway. The kingdom of God is, it's almost here, people, pay attention. When Jesus talks about the arrival of the kingdom, he's saying, it's here now. Literally, if you put your arm out in front of your face, the kingdom of God is here. The language of the gospel writers to announce this is the same language that was used to announce the birthday, the birthday of the emperor. When they talk about Augustus' birthday, they use that word evangelon as good news that the emperor is having his birthday. This is good for the kingdom of um, Rome. But with Jesus, we know that this is a kingdom of love and power everywhere for everyone. That he also claims to be the son of God, but he talks about laying down his life for his friends. So now the people of God are faced with a new choice. Will they trust this man was the answer to their prayers? Could he be a new Moses calling a people out of slavery through the waters of baptism and into a new land, a new heavenly country? Could he be a new David, reigning in a new kingdom, inviting them into a relationship of abundant love and meaningful purpose? He was demonstrating something they hadn't seen before. A new living power was in him. He was healing the sick. He was casting out demons. He was feeding the multitudes, and he was raising the dead. But this was not what they were expecting. He seemed to have a preference for the poor, just like the God of the Old Testament, but he was poor. He hung out with all the wrong people, and he asked only that people love God and love others as themselves, declaring that this would fulfill all the requirements of the law. But by this stage, the religious leaders had added so many laws to their practice that it didn't seem possible that this is what a holy God could look like. And then, of course, he went to the cross, and he died a brutal and humiliating death, the death of a criminal. 
The Apostle Paul puts it like this in Romans 5. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is what we might call Easter, our next E. The crucifixion of Christ. God becoming man and dying for us, taking all that was broken into himself, experiencing separation from God so that we don't have to, and then rising from the dead as a new Adam, the first of a new creation, a new humanity in whom God would dwell and who would be his image bearers on earth as he'd always intended. So what next? I think something unexpected happens next. I mean, if God becoming man and then dying and rising from the dead wasn't unexpected enough. But I think the story could end here. I mean, I think that Jesus could have returned to heaven and the people of God continued in the way that they always had, just maybe, you know, a little bit more fired up, a little bit more pumped. Maybe they've got some new songs, a new smoke machine, and some new stories to tell. But as Jesus returns to heaven, the Spirit of God is let loose on the earth. That's our next E, that the Spirit of God was poured out on everyone. Not everyone on the planet at the same time, but this was no longer limited to one ethnic group, to one time and to one place in history. From those first believers at Pentecost and throughout the years since then, men and women, young and old, rich and poor, have experienced the presence of God for themselves. And so this is where it gets personal. You might believe in a historical Jesus, even in the story that I've told so far. But are you willing to make this your story? Because we can join that long line of believers if we choose to, so that this ancient story becomes our story as real for us today as it was for them then. Each of us lives by our own story. It's probably not very neat. You might not have it all wrapped up yet, and it may not be turning out the way that you expected. But we'll all be following some kind of script in our heads. Every day we get bombarded with messages telling us what that script should be. Be skinny, be healthy, be married, be fun, be responsible, be happy. And whilst we're too modern, too postmodern, too liberal, too London <laughs> to believe in big stories anymore, because that would suggest that there's some sort of right or wrong way to live, we're actually desperate for someone to tell us what that might be. But if each of us has our own story, a story that's been formed by what's happened to us and what matters to us, what story does it tell? What story does your life tell? The problem with this story, the Bible story, is that at its center is a man on a cross. This is a problem for us because it carries with it an assumption that someone did something for us, came in pursuit of us, because we needed help. We needed rescue, freedom, exodus, whatever you want to call it. It also carries with it an assumption that death can be the path to life. And this is central to the biblical story. 
It's not all about power and privilege and prosperity in the way we would like it to be. It's about sacrifice and service and surrender in a way we would not like it to be. The cross calls us back to this place of apparent failure and foolishness again and again and again. It is a symbol of power and pain, but it can become for us a place of redemption and rest and relief. But only when we are willing to die, not physically so that one day in order that we might go to heaven, but that we might die to ourselves, to our selfishness, to our sinfulness, And in our surrender, we might receive all that Christ has for us, that we might receive the power of his spirit to be transformed by his abundant love and become a part of this story. This was the experience of the early church in the midst of poverty and persecution and why the last part of the Bible is full of letters to these young believers in young churches as they just tried to figure out what it looked like to follow Jesus, and to live in community with each other. The gospel message, the good news that God's kingdom had finally come, that the presence of God could be real in your life for your surrender, was as foolish and humiliating for them as it is for us. But the place of the cross and the power of the Spirit is what transformed this obscure, seemingly defeated little bunch of believers into a movement that has outlasted the Roman Empire. It has inspired works of art. It has created social welfare, education systems, and justice systems around the world. It led to the abolition of slavery. The first Christians were known as those who cared for the poor. And in every country around the world, you will still find people who continue to follow Christ today, radically choosing a life of sacrifice and surrender, loving God, loving our neighbors, and loving our enemies as ourselves. When Paul writes to the early church in Ephesians, he puts it like this. Watch what God does, and then you do it. Like children who learn proper behavior from their parents. Mostly what God does is love you. Keep company with him and learn a life of love. Observe how Christ loved us. His love was not cautious, but extravagant. He didn't love in order to get something from us, but to give everything of himself to us. Love like that. The Bible ends with hope for a future day. Instead of a garden, it talks of a city where the fullness of God will dwell for eternity, and that will be our last E. We talk about eternal life as though it's something that will happen to us when we die, but this is about a quality of life, an eternal shalom that only the Spirit of God can bring, that we can experience here and now. It's the taste of a kingdom without loss, without sickness, without pain, that we invite into the midst of our messy and complicated lives every time we cry, let your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. So we see that from Eden to eternity, God is at work in history, not as a distant observer who set this thing off and then stood back to see how it all works out, or as a puppeteer controlling our every move. We see that we have agency, we have choice, we have free will about what we do. 
And we can't always tell where God's involvement and our engagement fit together, where one begins and the other one ends. I love that thing you said about the transaction um, earlier when you were telling the story. It was brilliant. But we can find wisdom for life in this book. Not rules for life, I don't think. When we come to it sometimes just looking for sort of something that's more like doctrine, I think we struggle. Um, But in it we can find wisdom for living. We can find a relationship. And that's far more challenging than just being told what's right or wrong. I don't think we're necessarily supposed to take these stories and aspire to be like Moses or Ruth or David or Esther. But we can see ourselves in their lives ordinary people who are sometimes extraordinarily faithful and sometimes not. Their stories have ended, but ours go on. And we get to write the next chapter of what God is doing in history. We find ourselves living in exile, believers scattered throughout the earth, at odds with the culture around us, trying to work out how to be in the world, but not of the world. But because of Easter, God's kingdom has come. It is like yeast in the dough. It is active but unseen. But it is able to affect deep change within us and around us. Yes, we are people who are so often still wandering in the wilderness. Between the now and the not yet of the kingdom, often feeling like we're living on Easter Saturday as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But most of that is just life. Our salvation, like the Exodus, is not a blank check. It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. It took trust and hard work and good choices to enter the promised land. Our salvation is more like an adoption certificate, a new identity, a new sense of belonging and purpose and welcome, which we work out in our day-to-day lives in the midst of a new family. This word for salvation in the New Testament is sozo. It's a holistic phrase like shalom in the Old Testament, wholeness, peace, rightness, and rest. The kind of rest that um, Steve was talking about when he read those verses in Matthew 11 earlier. Jesus offers us that kind of fullness of life. The Apostle Paul describes it. I think we read that as well, being filled with the fullness of God. But we have to make room in our lives for that kind of indwelling. We have to make room in our lives for the presence of God so that we can experience his fullness even in the midst of our wilderness. So for all its combination of miracles and mystery, I don't think there's another story in history that is this credible. There is no other philosophy or religion that centers around a man claiming to be God who dies and rises again and then shares his life-giving presence with his followers. You know, if Jesus hadn't died and rose again, I honestly think they, they would have packed up and gone home. Instead, they were transformed and they transformed the world. It's not to say there aren't a thousand uh, self-help books out there or philosophies that can't help you find more of what you're looking for. They can and they will and they do. But not one of them makes this kind of claim. Not one of them can tell of a God who suffered and yet overcame death, who asks more of us than we think we can give and yet offers us more than we can imagine. Whatever your story, whatever script you are following, 
Is it better than that? Should we stand? We're going to have a short time of worship now. This time, though, at the when we when we make this transition from listening to somebody up here talking a lot um, to going into uh, worship is is for you. It's for us. Uh, we, I guess, not all churches do this, but we certainly do this because it's an opportunity for you to respond to what God is doing with you. It's it's not for me to 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 tell you to do anything. It's certainly for me to look and see what I think I see God doing and to, and to um, uh, uh, ask for more of that. But these moments are about responding to something that's been going on with you this week, today, this evening. Something you felt stirring in your heart maybe during worship. Something that was going on when you saw Steve calling things out and praying for people. Something when you heard the stories earlier. Maybe something in the talk. So I, I would encourage you to close your eyes to uh, just uh, um, remove any unnecessary distraction. I promise I'm not going to do anything that you're going to miss out on by having your eyes closed. Um, uh, but uh, often we respond with our bodies because of what's going on in our hearts. But sometimes we do things with our bodies in order to engage our hearts. So we are going to worship for a bit now. I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit to come in, in, in just in an increasing measure because he's clearly already here this evening. And I just encourage you to quieten your heart and to listen for the Lord. And uh, you may not hear a voice saying that God has a surprise for you. But the kind of things that we might sense or, or feel or, or hear, um, you might have a sense of peace. You might have a sense of your heart pounding. You might feel for no particular reason your hands feel sweaty or clammy. You might, all, all sorts of things, sometimes our lips might tremble, our eyelids might tremble. All of these things can sound super weird, but actually you imagine that if God's coming and touching you, it might feel a little bit like electricity. So those are some of the things that might be going on with you. No one can make those things happen to you. That's you and your response to the Lord. We just want to give you space right now. After we've sung for a bit, we'll give you an opportunity to come forward for prayer if you want to, or to come here before the cross. Some of you will have been thinking about the cross this evening in a very different way after hearing it spoken about. It might be a long time since you've thought about the cross. So this might be an opportunity for you to come and re-engage with the Christ of the cross. Just to lay your burdens down, your anxieties down, your sin down in front of the cross. But let this be your time. Don't go from here without engaging with the Lord in this way. And if you want prayer, come and get it. Let someone stand alongside you with whatever it is that you want to give up or you want to get. They will be kind to you. They will respect you. No one's here to embarrass you. So Lord, we welcome your presence in increasing measure. And as we come to worship you again now, would you pour out your spirit on us? You see us, Lord. It, it's almost like we're that cheese with the holes in. And you would come and fill the holes, fill the gaps in us, Lord. Where we need peace, where we need passion, where we need power, Lord, would you come? Where we need courage, would you pour it out on us, Lord? Find that part of us where we just need to be brave right now. And would you fill it with your spirit? Come, Lord. 
comrade. This is your time. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.